testing. Tasting, tasting. Okay. My name is Kerry Olson, and I'm a, an elder candidate here at Redeemer 30A, and I'm glad that you're here. Um, I, I want to ask you, please, to excuse me if in the course of the preaching I begin to cough and snort and carry on like that. I don't intend to do that. I would rather not do that. I'm in the fifth or sixth day of a cold, and as you know, colds will last seven to ten days no matter what you do. <laughs> and it's, a, it's been a bit of a test, but I'm grateful for the opportunity to open the Word today. Our pastors have been preaching through Ephesians, and we've come now to Ephesians chapter 3, and we will be opening and considering verses 1 through 6. I'd like to encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open it, and there are Bibles on the seat backs near you, and I know some of you use electronic gear, Ephesians 3, 1 through 6, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Okay. I'm not going to touch it. This is for short people. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I invite you to pray with me. Um, I've been a preacher for almost 40 years, and for the past 30 years or so of my ministry, I have always knelt before I preach, and you're invited to do that, but you're not required to do that. Nobody's going to be looking and saying, oh, there's unholiness over there. They stayed in their seat. Besides, it's way too hard. But would you pray with me, please? Father, it's an awesome thing. It really is an awesome thing that you make yourself known to us. The Word makes it clear. You don't need anything. You don't need anyone because you are entirely self-sufficient. And yet, for your namesake, for your glory, you have made yourself known to us and you have rescued for yourself people out of sin and death in order to bring glory to your great name and to that of your son Jesus. So we're asking you as the word is opened today 
that you would make much of yourself and that Jesus will be lifted up in his great name. And we pray, while we know that you're present here by your spirit, that you would manifest your presence in such a way that we experience your nearness and the power of your word would be applied to us and in particular that we would be taken with and even overwhelmed with the beauty of the gospel and of Christ. And there are people here today who need to meet Jesus. Would you draw them to yourself in him? And there are others who love you and believe in you who have needs in a variety of ways. There are people who are harboring sin. There are people in pain, people who are sad. You know all about us. And you're able to customize the preaching of the word and the experience of worshipers in order to meet those needs. So we're asking you for your help. You know I need your help. I pray that you would strengthen my voice. I pray that you would give every person here ears to hear and that you would be pleased to use me as your your mouthpiece so that I'm not the one who's heard but that you are and that truth will be declared here for the sake of your great name and glory for Jesus sake and for the sake of all the people here I pray this in Christ's strong name amen Now, at the outset of the message, we're in Ephesians 3, right? I think it'll be helpful for us to understand that there's a structural element in chapter 3 that we don't see very often in the scriptures. There's a lengthy digression, you know that word? From verses 2 through 13. And our pastors decided that going all the way to, what is it, verse 14 in one chunk in one sermon it would be too much, and yes, it would be too much. And I looked at my records, and the, the last time I preached through, uh, well, I preached through Ephesians once, and the last time I preached in, in Ephesians 3, I just preached the first two verses. This is not a threat. It doesn't mean that six verses, it's going to take me an hour and a half. It will only be an hour and five minutes but there's a, there's a digression here from verse 2 through 13. And it will help you because you're going to see after having read verse 1, this introductory verse from Paul, there's, there's a break. And it's kind of sudden, a change of direction at the end of verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, and a prisoner for Jesus Christ, and then there's a punctuation mark, a dash, or a hyphen, or whatever you grammarians want to call it. And it's added to the text, and it helps us then 
we get the signal, there's a digression coming. And at the conclusion of his digression, we can see in verse 14 that Paul, in verse 1, was building up to a prayer for the Ephesian believers. We could put it all together this way. Verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and then go down to where he, he, he's done with his digression. I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, bow my knees before the Father. All along he had intended to pray for the people of Ephesus in that area. There were several congregations, we understand. But the Spirit led him to this digression. And what a prayer this is. I can't remember the, prayer, the, the preaching schedule, but whoever gets to preach this, it's, it's just so powerful. It is so full. It's overwhelming. An amazing prayer for us in the 21st century as a church to pray for one another, for us at Redeemer 30A, or if you're visiting from somewhere else and you have a church home, begin praying this way for your church more to come. I think the text will be dealt with on the 16th of December. Now, to dwell on verses 1 through 6. First of all, number one, if you're a note taker, Paul writes, for this reason I, Paul. What reason? You have to ask the question. This is a great way to study the Bible. Ask questions of the text. And to answer, we look back in chapter 2, and in fact, we can look all the way back to chapter 1 as well. There are many reasons found there, and here are some of them as found only in chapter 2 for time's sake. In his love, grace, and mercy to the Ephesian Christians and all believers in Christ, God has granted such a great salvation. For example, He's given life to dead people, spiritually dead people, deliverance from the control of the evil one, liberty, this is, this is chapter 2, right? Liberty from slavery to the passions of our natural fleshly desires, release from the just wrath of God against us in our sin, and he is justified to punish sin. And there's more. God has granted this indescribably great salvation to Jews and non-Jews or Gentiles alike. Now, we here in this room probably can't begin to appreciate how amazing that is, how stunning that is. Because religious Jews would be offended at the thought that there would be Gentiles anywhere near them. And Gentiles would be offended as well to think that they'd be united to, to Jewish people apart from a work of God. I do want to take time so that you can get the feel of this again if you've not been with us for the preaching of chapter 2. How great this really is. This, this work of bringing Jews and non-Jews together starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So it's no longer Jews and Gentiles, it's a new batch of people, right? It's a, it's a, it's a brand new people and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, I love this, I love this phrase, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to one spirit, or in one spirit, to the Father. The Father being the God of the universe, we have access to him so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now let that sink in on you, Redeemer. There's a sense in which this fellowship, this church is a dwelling place for God, made up of all kinds of people. I don't know if there are any completed Jews here in the room, but all kinds of people nonetheless. Do you get it? Do you get it? There was a guy in our church in Bloomington, Minnesota. Sorry, I I shouldn't do this. It's too late now. (laughs) He moved to Minnesota from South Carolina. And he married a single lady in our church. And he was thoroughly South Carolina. And when I would get to preaching like I just was... All of a sudden, from over there where, where Roy sat, and now Roy's with Jesus, would say, Amen. <laughs> that loud. And now, you understand, these are staid, stoic, Swedish people, white folks, sitting in this proper sanctuary. And all of a sudden, they hear, Amen. Three syllables in a two-syllable word. Now, I'm not begging for amens, but I just want to make sure you get this. You are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit that has all kinds of implications on us in terms of who we are, by whom we've been purchased, and the lives in pursuit of sanctification and holiness that he calls us to. That's number one. Number two, Paul identifies himself for a second time in the letter to the Ephesians. The first time is in chapter one, verse one. Paul, an apostle 
of Christ Jesus. And here again he says, I, Paul, a prisoner, isn't that amazing? A prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He was qualified as an apostle, so it made sense for him at the beginning to say, Paul, an apostle. He was an eyewitness of Christ when the Lord confronted him and called him to himself on the road to Damascus as he was on his way to, do, to, to, to cause all kinds of havoc in, in the church, in the body of Christ, and see that people were arrested and perhaps even some put to death. But here in chapter 3, Paul claims the title or name of prisoner for Christ or of Christ. He owned, get this now, he owned this identification. And I think he gloried in it because he knew his life, because of the work of Christ, was under the sovereign control of God and that God had placed him in Rome as a prisoner in fulfillment on the, uh, of the call on his life, Acts 9.15, to, quote, carry the name of Christ before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul refers to this calling, his assignment, his purpose in life in verse 2 of our text, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. It's a stewardship that all of us as believers in Jesus Christ are given. We experience the wonder of the gospel applied to us in rescuing us from sin and death by God's grace. Therefore, the stewardship of God's grace is ours. We don't hang on to it. This stewardship of God's grace is none other than the great news of Christ Jesus that was enumerated in chapters 1 and 2. And Paul says that it was given to him to give away. That's what stewardship is in this case. And declare to the Ephesian people, most of them, who were Gentiles. What I want you to see here is that Paul's identity in life was all wrapped up in Jesus Christ and his gospel. So when he was in prison, he was a prisoner for Christ. And when the Jewish religious establishment pursued and persecuted and wanted to exterminate him for declaring Christ, wherever he declared it, including among Gentiles, like many of the believers in Ephesus were, Paul appealed to Rome as a Roman citizen, you remember this, and was taken there. That's where he wanted to go. Carrying the good news of Jesus to that city, we would tend to think, man, in jail, unjustly? No. Don't miss this. Paul was in Roman custody, and while he was there, he was witnessing to all the guards. But he was not Rome's prisoner. He was Christ's prisoner, willingly. And we'll come back to this at the end because there's a strong application to be made. I've got several applications. This will be the very last one that will lead us into communion. Here's number three. Let's focus together on this glorious word, mystery. 
The mystery described in Ephesians 3 is glorious for this reason. I'm very sorry. Here's the reason it's so glorious, this mystery, because the mystery is the great, big, glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love to say this, the gospel is good news because the gospel is, in fact, Christ Jesus himself. My desire this morning is that we will glory in the Lord Jesus more than we ever have before as we look into this mystery and what I have for you here, this is kind of an aside, but I, it, it's too good to let go. So I'm inserting in this sermon a descriptive, definitive, glorious digression as we consider glorious mystery. Colossians 1. Because Paul uses the word mystery more often than just in Ephesians. In Colossians 1, and I have particular interest in 26 and 27, but I'm starting in verse 24, so we get into the flow of the context. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Wow, that, that's an amazing text. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, sounds familiar, to make the word of God fully known. Here it is, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory so it works doesn't it to call the mystery glorious to call the gospel glorious it's nothing less than that so we'll break this down a little bit for you note takers here's letter a we'll define mystery it occurs, this word, three times in verses 1 through 6, 3, 4, and 6. And the word means, in English, something dark, obscure, secret, puzzling. John R. W. Stott, in his commentary on Ephesians, says, it is inexplicable and incomprehensible. Some of you like to read mysteries, maybe. That the, 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 the genre of literature would fit in this definition, something dark, obscure, secret. The author doesn't want you to solve it until the very end. But the Greek word, the New Testament Greek word for mystery, which is mysterion, is different, quite different. It's still secret, that's true, but it's an open secret. Open for whom? So, here in Ephesians, mystery involves, quote, again from Stott, truth which, although beyond human discovery, 
human unaided discovery has been revealed by God so now belongs openly to the whole church. More simply, mysterion is a truth hitherto hidden from human knowledge or understanding but now disclosed by the revelation of God. Close the quote. And I want to add one more aspect to the meaning of mysterion, mystery, because it is a wonder, it is awesome, it is amazing, as we will see. That's why, was it Newton who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace? He wrote it because it's amazing. And perhaps my favorite hymn, and I, I think I said this the last time I preached here, but you ought to prepare for your funeral. You really should. My wife knows that here's a hymn I want at my funeral. Whenever it is, I'm not planning it immediately, planning for it immediately. It is, and can it be? You know this great hymn? I was going to sing it for you, but this cold intervened, and so you're spared. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain? For me, to him who death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Tis mystery, or mercy, mer tis mercy all. Let earth adore, let angel minds inquire no more. Sounds Christmassy, doesn't it? And then one more verse, although there are more. He left his father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And we know from our text, starting in verse 3, that, and here's letter B, God made the mystery known to Paul. He says, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. <coughs> it was made known to him when God surprisingly called him by name on the Damascus road, called him out of his dead, Pharisaic, murderous, legalistic, exclusivist religious life and saved him and called him to preach the gospel that he was opposed to. To preach the gospel not only for his own Jewish people but also to untouchable people, at least before they were untouchable for him, the Gentiles. And you can read about that in Acts 9 and Galatians 1. The mystery was made known to him when God favored him with humbling, indescribable, divine, heavenly visions. And when God showed him that God's grace is so complete and so sufficient that living with his thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, because God did not take the thorn away when Paul pleaded three times for relief, was actually a blessing for him. You ever suffered in any way and you recognized later it was a blessing from God? I have. 
Three times, Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that by the power so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ then I'm content with weaknesses insults hardships persecutions and calamities for when I am weak then I am strong 2 Corinthians 12 letter C Paul also wrote about the mystery he was compelled to do it. He had to pass it along. Again, you can see it in chapters 1 and 2 in Ephesians and in all of his writings. But please go with me to verses 3 and 4, describing the stewardship of God's grace he has been given. He says, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can pursue perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Here's a brief overview of Paul's insights concerning this mystery. He describes Gentile followers of Jesus as having been formerly double alienated. We're looking back earlier now in Ephesians. Double alienated alienated from God's chosen people, Israel, and also alienated from God. It says, without God in the world. Then it says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Christ has demolished the wall of hostility and entrenched hatred. And it seems unbelievably reconciled both Jews and Gentiles to God in one body through his cross, thus creating one new humanity in Jesus through the gospel. Both have peace with God in Christ and peace between former enemies in Christ. Both have access to God in one spirit. Both are fellow citizens and members of God's household or family, both in Christ Jesus, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We have to pause for a minute now. I, I, I hurried through that to appreciate how fantastic this wonder is. We, we probably can't get it. The hatefulness between Jews and Gentiles in this day, Paul's day, how might we understand this rift between Jews and Gentiles? Some of you know about Corey Ten Boom's story, uh, who was uh, imprisoned uh, in, in a gulag, not a gulag, in, in a uh, concentration camp, um, World War II, the Germans, and how much later in life she met one of the guards and forgave him. How can we fully appreciate the power of this gospel, the mystery of this gospel, to bring Jews and Gentiles together in Christ? The rift between modern-day Jews and Palestinians. You ever been over in Israel and received the warnings about travel? 
When Renette and I were over there a number of years ago, we were walking along, I can't remember the name of the place, Renette knows the name of the place, it's that little valley there near, just outside the city of Jerusalem. And our, our guide, Baruch, man, he was fast. He could walk so fast. You walk everywhere in Israel. And he gave us instructions. He said, now while we're walking through here, just walk as fast as you can, keep your head down, and watch, watch for rocks coming over the wall. What? I, I didn't hurt anybody. There's this hatred. There's this, this, this steaming, abiding hatred there. Because some people are Jews and some people are Palestinians. In this country, the, the stain of racism continues. The color of skin appears to matter. Not in the body of Christ, right? Because there's one new humanity now. There's more we could say there. I'm down to letter D. Further, the mystery was not fully revealed in earlier generations, Paul says. Through the Old Testament, God had indeed revealed some things of the mystery of Christ and the gospel. In chapter 12 of Genesis, God explicitly promised Abram that in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in Psalm 2, Christ the Messiah is anticipated. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. My Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And from the prophet Isaiah, looking ahead to Christ, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. But the fullness and the unique, unexpected, miraculous extent of God's promises of the Savior foretold were not known. The fullness was not known. And Paul says in verse 5, it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit of God. Apostles. Paul was one. Eyewitnesses to Christ who were appointed and commissioned to carry the great news of the gospel wherever they went. And then prophets. Now there's some debate about what this refers to. Here's what I think it means in verse 5. They're not Old Testament prophets because it's talking, about, it's talking about in the now, right? In this text. But they're prophets in the sense of foretelling, speaking out, speaking out the truth, the gospel truth. Gifted with the message and a powerful way of, of conveying it. Letter E. Here's the mystery explicitly stated. Now we're getting down to the end. So tune in. If you're tuning out, tune in. The mystery explicitly stated, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the gospel is barrier-breaking. It takes what is old and dead and makes it new. And there are connections in the body of Christ that could never have existed 
without Christ and his gospel. So Gentiles and Jews are co-heirs of the same inheritance. Gentiles and Jews are co-members of the same body. Gentiles and Jews are co-partakers of the same promise. And all of this is accomplished in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And that's true of Redeemer 38. For all of us who by God's grace have entrusted our lives in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ and experienced his rescue from sin and death, this is true of us. We are one new race of people. Stott says, to sum it up, we may say that the mystery of Christ is the complete union of Jews and Gentiles with each other through the union of both with Christ. Where once there was double, oh, what was that term? Don't leave your notes, Carrie, you get in trouble. Double alienation. Now, there is, Stott says, double union with Christ and with each other, which was and still is the substance of the mystery. Now here are the implications and applications. In your notes, the first, read it to me, what's it say? That's coming last, okay? So the first thing in the notes is the last that I will speak. For our fellowship, the church of the Lord Jesus is much, much more than a group of people who have similar religious convictions or share in the same generation, like most of us do at Redeemer 30A. Isn't it cool to have gray-haired people in a young church like this? Come on, come on. When by God's grace we share in the mystery of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have one identity. Take this in now, Redeemer. We are Christ's. We are for Christ. We are in Christ, and we are of Christ. We are all one in him. So walls that separated us before have been taken down. We're fellow citizens in God's household. We are family who love one another with an extraordinary love, who overlook weaknesses and sin in others so that we're not anxious to pick out little specks when we got logs in our own. We are brothers and sisters, and God dwells among us and in us. We're reminded of this oneness and identity every time we come together for worship, every time we share at the table, and every time we witness believers' baptism. For our ministries as a church, I'm trying to be as brief as I can. When we declare Christ through our ministries together, we share the very same mystery and gospel and Lord that's described in Ephesians. When we minister to players and families of JV soccer, right? For example, when you and your MC do an outreach, when we go to Southport, with hot meals to help people whose homes were destroyed. We declare Jesus Christ who saves all kinds of people, not 
just people who are just like us. Thank the Lord for that. And whose gospel blows, blows up. I mean, it dynamites barriers between people formerly as far as from one another uh, as people formerly could have been as far from one another as they could be. For our mission work, I'm thinking cross-culturally now, the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ moves us to go and send and give sacrificially and take risks in order to reach people who are very much unlike us. This happened this past summer in Turkey when a team of people went and the cops started following them and people thought, some people on the team, not all, thought the end was, had come. They were going to jail for the rest of their lives and the, <laughs> the cops ended up cooking for them. Whether Muslims in Turkey or unreached people groups in China and on and on we could go. It is the great by powerful good news of Jesus Christ, Christ himself, who emboldens us to go and send with the gospel of Jesus Christ to impossible people to reach. It's by powerful because it brings people to God through Christ and it brings people who are alienated from one another together as one. For our personal faith and attitudes and obedience, question, here's a question. In your family or in your neighborhood, are there people whom you hesitate to approach about spiritual matters and Jesus because you conclude that they're too hard or they're beyond help or they're too different than you are? Well, the book of Ephesians calls you on this one, calls me on unbelief. If Jesus brings together Jews and Gentiles in one body, then he can and will call unlikely people to himself through you and through me. and Santa Rosa Beach and the other beach communities and Freeport and other places around us from where you come, from where we come desperately need Christ. Here's the last one. For each individual in this room, Paul identified himself as Christ's prisoner when he was in custody for preaching the gospel. So I ask you this. Ask yourself this. Do I identify myself as being of Christ and for Christ and in Christ in every relationship and situation, good or bad, difficult or easy, happy or sorrowful? Am I a husband identified as of and for Jesus Christ? If I am, it makes a difference in how I love my wife. Am I, you might be saying to yourself, am I a wife like that? A son, a daughter? Am I a witness like that? An encourager? A mourner? One who's sad and grieving? There's a way to do that that shows Christ in you an investor, an employee, a friend, a single person. You get it, right? There's a way to do all of life with this identity, a prisoner of Christ, in Christ, a 
fill in the blank of Christ because the call to discipleship today is to live our lives as identified, wrapped up in Christ, overwhelmed with the mystery of the gospel, to think that Christ, who is the gospel, would, would be ours. Now we're going to come to our time of communion. And I have three things to say. But first I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. You bear with me, I'm still still a little unsure of the logistics of communion. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul writing. He's addressing some difficulties in the body of Christ at Corinth. As you know, he says, for I received from the Lord, but that's the context. Then he moves on to verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. I thought of that, those last verses this morning during the nine o'clock prayer time. Come at nine if you can to pray. And the one who facilitated the prayer took us to Romans 8 first few verses and I was struck with the fact that when I as a follower of Christ choose to live in the flesh I am behaving in a hostile way toward God that was the word hostile 